1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Dufton, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Ido Hardigson, author of the new book, American Trip, Set, Setting, and the Psychedelic Experience in the 20th Century. Hardigson is an assistant professor in the graduate program in science, technology, and society at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. Previously, he was a visiting postdoctoral fellow with the Program on Science, Technology and Society at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and a former journalist. American Trip, released by MIT Press earlier this year, is his first book in English. Ito, welcome to the show. Hi. So before we discuss American Trip, you've had a really interesting professional career. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you transformed from a journalist into a professor.
2: Right so um I've worked as a journalist for many years though I consider my first myself first of all a writer and I've been writing ever since I was a kid and um then uh, over the years uh switching from writing fiction to writing non-fiction first as a journalist and then arriving uh, uh, or entering into the academy more seriously, I ended up getting really involved in the subject of psychedelics, uh, both as a scholar as well as uh, an activist in this field and an artist. I've had uh, several uh, projects that I've uh, started over the years uh, psychedelic Video Museum online, um, uh, Psychedelic Magazine that I've uh, edited, and um, uh, also my first book, Techno Mystica, uh, was uh, the first Hebrew book that really um, got into the subject of psychedelics. And um, I, I guess the transition from, uh, from this more... Uh, uh outside the world outside the academy into the academy was just you know gradual as i was writing my dissertation And going on on that path, and I think it's a transition that I find is is both could could be frustrating at times when you need to give up some of the liberties that you have as a a thinker and as a writer when you're outside the academy. But then on the other hand, it also allowed me uh, to go much deeper than I would have otherwise uh, in this research of the history and the theory of of psychedelics, which is uh, something that I'm very grateful for in that sense. uh, I think for all the um, criticism that uh, many of us have at times uh, about the academy, uh, that's some kind of gift that uh, that it does give you uh, the opportunity to really uh, enter and uh, dive deep into intellectual subjects that I'm, I'm very grateful for.
0: That's fascinating. So so you've clearly been interested in studying psychedelics and psychedelia for a long time. Were you always interested in American uh, experiences with psychedelics or were you focusing on the ex- Israeli experience
2: as well? <laughs> um, so basically, I've started out with this um with this whole project uh, trying to prove some kind of theory in the field of science, technology, and society studies, which is a theory that's called uh, social construction of technology. And it's about how society shapes technologies. And it seemed to me, uh, thinking about the case of of LSD uh, in the mid-20th century United States, that that was really the uh, ideal... Or, uh example or instance to to uh, take this this model um a- apply it for the case of psychedelics and also extend it to show that psychedelics are really this kind of uh, quite unique technology that acts differently that can expand and uh, on this model and um, add new intricacies into it so so the th- the american story was uh, was something that uh, was for this reason first very interesting to me but then uh, at the same time you know uh, i've always been fascinated uh, by american culture and particularly take it with the 1960s decade and the different ideas and movements uh, of that time so uh, you know ever since i was a kid so this kind of project really allowed me to dive into that world, uh, and I ended up uh, through it, kind of reliving the the nineteen sixties, on uh, mm-hmm. maybe textually only, but in a sense, uh, it was the. Um, the coming, uh, uh, the coming together of, uh, or uh, the realization of a dream of of living in the sixties that I've <laughs> had uh, for for many years I- in my life, and it, it's funny you should mention, by the way, the, the Israeli psychedelic experience, because uh, right now one of the um, uh, um, offshoots of this whole project is that I think the world is is becoming more and more interested in these questions of psychedelics and culture, and of also looking beyond the American perspective. So this book kind of provides uh, an American perspective on the on on psychedelia, uh, of of course, adding to many other works that. Um, use an American perspective but right now I'm actually in, in the process of writing a history of Israeli psychedelia so I'm mm. kind of uh, going through the process of you know t- t- starting to uh, being part of a, a larger project that I'm think I think uh, other people are also getting into now of producing the, these more uh, nationally oriented histories uh, of psychedelia uh, that are much in line of what I try to do in the book. Well, that's
0: that's fascinating, and it leads. You write perfectly into my next question, which was to to unpack your title. Uh, why why is this an American trip? Uh, as you just said, you're writing a new work on the history of Israeli psychedelia. Psychedelics are used worldwide, aren't they? So, so why focus specifically on an American trip?
2: So, right, sure, I mean, psychedelics are used worldwide and have been used in, uh, worldwide for, uh, for uh, uh, centuries and millennia, uh, but one of the key ideas in the book is the idea that the psychedelic experience is highly malleable and that the effects of psychedelics are deeply shaped by the culture they're embedded in, so... It's difficult to speak of a universal psychedelic experience. Uh, and that's one of the ways in which the, the book kind of challenges some of the common wisdoms, I think, or, or some of the assumptions that exist around psychedelics, around this idea of the, the psychedelic experience, uh, this kind of, um, of universal. Uh, entity, uh, objective entity that exists in the world. And what I try to show in the the book also by comparing the American experience to experiences from other cultures um, is how uh, each culture and each subculture tends to produce its own kind of psychedelic experience with distinct features. So the American psychedelic experience uh, is different from the French uh, trip or from the Shipibo trip, uh, or from the Israeli trip. And, um, and even the American uh, trip, the American psychedelic experience tends to shift and change uh, with the decades. And and so uh, this is why the book is primarily dedicated to the case of uh, psychedelics in the mid 20th century. And it's trying to create a sort of um, a relativization of the psychedelic experience or just... Um, uh, trying to show that we need to speak about uh, psychedelic experience as something that's also embedded in its time and place, and 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 that's why it's it's called American trip. Mm-hmm. And, and let me Excellent. add to that uh, uh, that that uh, the the idea of the American trip was also. Also based on this one recurring uh, notion that you read across many of the uh, discussions about the 1960s decade, this idea that the American society had this, uh, the 1960s were like this sort of trip and that the entire American society went through this experience uh, in the 1960s that was very dramatic, very intensive, very intense, that was much like a trip Uh, and uh, so I try to uh, look at this uh, idea. Take it literally. Take it seriously in the book, and ask uh, what kind of trip was that? How did the uh, did the did the external factors shape that trip? And 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 really uh, kind of give a, I would say kind of a biography of that collective trip of the American trip of the '60s. That's that maybe the most iconic trip in the history of psychedelia.
0: Isn't that great? I love it when when authors find the perfect title for their work that that essentially summarizes everything that it is they're trying to to grapple with in their work. And I think American Trip is an ideal title for this work. And it's so nice to to hear you really unpack it and and tell tell us exactly what you're referring to, the multitude of things that you're referring to with these two little words. Um, But your subtitle is also really interesting. So your subtitle is Set, Setting, and the Psychedelic Experience in the 20th Century. You've already talked quite a bit about uh, the 20th century aspect of this. You're focusing primarily on the 60s, although um, you talk about the 1950s as well. But before we talk more about time, there are those two words, set and setting. I was wondering if you could tell us what you mean by set and setting and why these concepts are so important when you're discussing the psychedelic experience.
2: Sure. So, uh, sense setting is this uh, v- idea that's very central to psychedelic theory and to psychedelic practice, uh, and something that uh, not only professionals know but also a lot of uh, uh, lay lay people that or anybody interested in psychedelics. And it's been around since the sixties. And what it basically says it is that the experience of a psychedelic trip. Um, depends first and foremost on two types of factors uh, first on the set and that's all of the internal psychological factors like the expectation the intention uh, the mood of the person when they're going into the experience and then the second type uh, second kind of factors are uh, the setting and that refers to all the environmental factors like where you are who you are with uh, or what your culture tells you about these experiences and so, uh, based on these kinds of contextual factors, the experience can go in many different directions and radically different directions. So, the the psychedelic experience, for this reason, can be uh, extremely beautiful or, or extremely harrowing, scary, uh, scarring. It can be heavenly. It can be hellish. And that depends on the kind of context that you that you have for, for the experience. And... Of course, context is always important uh, to whatever experience we have in the world. Uh, ex- our expectations and intentions and the social environment are always important, no matter uh, where we go. But uh, they tend to be even more crucial in the case of psychedelics, because uh, and that's a key key um, point about psychedelics. This idea that uh, the the word psychedelic actually means um, uh, mind manifesting right that's the translation and you have this idea mm-hmm. of psychedelics as amplifiers of of experience so um they're they're kind of uh they, they have these tendency to intensify the experience. So in that state, uh, all of these contextual factors uh, become enlarged and they become much more crucial. So that really uh, any passing anxiety can become full-blown paranoia or otherwise uh, just a a pleasant view can become wholly uh, um, uh, ecstatic or uh, epiphatic epiphanous uh, experience. And in the case of psychiatric research of the mid-20th century, uh, you really see how that came into place and uh, how different groups who worked under different kinds of, of sets and settings really produced very different kinds of results. And you had, for example, one, uh, some groups of researchers that were working under the idea that these drugs produce psychosis and uh, they were giving them to people uh, with, um, and telling them, you know, you, you will take this drug and you will go mad for a couple of hours. And, and these people had, yeah, and not, not the best kind of, uh, introduction, uh, before going into, uh, before taking a drug generally. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and they, they would have this experience, uh, in a, in a hospital room and, you know, surrounded by, uh, by, um, uh, psychiatrists or, or, or people that they don't know that often behaved uh, quite impersonally. They would have to uh, go through these very exhausting batteries of tests. So obviously a lot of these people had uh, really awful experiences and and this uh, then uh, shaped the kinds of uh, uh, conclusions that these researchers were uh, were making about these substances while, while actually these were just reflections of the kinds of, of environments uh, that they were creating and on the other hand you would have other groups of researchers that would have uh, their uh, subjects um, they would tell them you know this drug will make you more creative or more spiritual it will help you work for your problems and they would have them uh, spend their time in a comfortable beautifully Set space, um, you know, just uh, listening to records and being there with a therapist or with friends with a lot of support. So very different kinds of experiences, and and the the, set, the setting is is so important because that really stands um, at the at the basis of the of the central uh, argument, which is about this. Um, malleability about this multiplicity of, of, of psychedelic effects and uh, how they depend on context and the broader implication that this dependency has.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The 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 context and the power of suggestion seem uh, so important and so powerful uh, when discussing the psychedelic experience. Um, but the setting, specifically, I think, is also a really interesting question because you set your American trip, your book, in the mid-20th century. And I think to many people, psychedelics seem like something from uh, the 1960s writ large, sort of in the cultural imagination, which usually means the late 1960s into the 1970s when um, the hippies were at their at their zenith and there's this, you know, imagination of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and Woodstock and all these other things. But you don't focus only on that period. You actually take readers back to an earlier period as well, uh, discussing the 1950s and early 60s. Why were psychedelics so important during the the mid-20th century? And how did they emerge into the American consciousness uh, at this time? Were they available prior to the 1950s, or did they only really emerge mid-century?
2: Right. So, uh, you know, I focus on the on, uh, on the 1950s and 60s. Psychedelics became more uh, culturally present, I guess, in the ni- late 1960s and early 1970s. But the story of uh, psychedelic research and really the moment in which these uh, drugs made, made their uh, advent or uh, into... Uh, 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 the culture and into uh, into science and where there uh, very diverse types of potentialities became uh became known was already in the 1950s which was the really the heyday of of psychedelic research the 1950s and the early days uh, the early 1960s because uh, later on uh, actually by the time that these things really got um to become more popular and more um why, uh, more popularized and uh, publicized they were already kind of uh, 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 over with uh, as a as a scientific enterprise or or uh, the 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 uh, uh, psychedelic research was already running into a lot of trouble and um and the psychedelics were were you know they were known uh, to some degree uh, in uh, since the 19th century and of course you had anthropologists going and uh, eating masculine with native tribes and you, you have uh, William James a uh, father of American psychology who also had an experience with masculine but really uh, all of this changed when psychedelics uh, when LSD arrived at the scene which, was, which happened in the early nineteen fifties, and that was the case. I think for several reasons, and one of them, uh, a crucial one, was that LSD was just so much more active than and potent than than other uh, than other psychedelics. So that uh, just uh, one gram of, of LSD was was enough to those ten thousand people, and and this was uh, this was this turned this. Um, this substance um, into something that could be argued to have uh, uh, immense significance in the sense that it's uh, might be indicative of processes that we have in the brain and um, and that's part of the reason why psychiatrists became so fascinated uh, with with this drug in the in the early 50s and then were just uh, other uh, cultural reasons that uh, that ended up um, being the, the real um, uh, the real uh, the reasons why why psychedelics became that central uh, in the late fifties and early nineteen sixties, just as American culture was going through this new phase of opening up after McCarthyism and trying new paths uh, in art and in the culture and in therapy and, and all of these alternative um, uh, movements were kind of simmering uh, where LSD and other psychedelics could really um, um, could really attach to quite well and, and become the seeds of the kind of cultural revolution that, that they ended up uh, uh, fomenting.
0: Right. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about LSD specifically. How is it different from other psychedelics like psilocybin or mescaline? Uh, you said it's more powerful, but is it different in other ways? And how did it make its way to America? Was it, I, I, I don't believe it was uh, discovered in the United States, was it? So how did it come over here?
2: right so LSD was discovered by Albert Hoffman in uh, 1943 and one of the the key thing that uh, really made it so extraordinary uh, as I've mentioned is its potency because Hoffman uh, the the famous story is that uh, he was uh, he was trying this uh, this dr- This uh, compound that uh, he, after having a strange sensation a few days earlier while synthesizing it, and he thought, "How that might that thing might be." Um, uh, psychoactive, and he tried the the uh, an amount that he thought would, under no circumstances, be active. It turned out to be a huge dose, and mm-hmm. LSD was. Yeah, and he ended up having this uh, epic bike ride back home that's celebrated every year to this day um, on on bicycle on what's today known as Bicycle Day on the nineteenth of, yes. of April, and and. So LSD was just uh, the idea that um, 100 micrograms uh, uh, and the microgram is one millionth of of a gram uh, were enough to uh, send a person to a a different reality was something uh, that was quite extraordinary at the time almost unbelievable and when Hoffman first reported uh, he these uh, these results uh, uh, people at, at his uh, firm was actually were actually quite uh, skeptical uh, of that and asking to, to revisit his his conclusions um, and and as I said the, the idea that, that the thing that made LSD uh, as as um, as interesting and as radical uh, as it was thought to be was that uh, it was thought as a uh, m- psychosis mimicking agent as a psychosomimetic, something that induces psychosis. And psychiatrists had this idea for a long time that you have, um, that psychosis might be caused by some kinds of, of mental um of a psychochemical imbalance or some kind of of uh, substance that being that's being secreted by the brain, but with mescaline, for instance, there was uh, this this hypothesis can never really take off because uh, mescaline was only active above a certain range that you should have been able to find in the brain of a patient after uh, after he passes away. Uh, so so in that sense. Um, You could argue that if we don't find it there, then it's probably false. But with LSD, the idea was that uh, if if such minuscule amounts of this substance are enough to cause what people then consider... As uh, psychosis-inducing effects, then really um, this drug could be the uh, the key to unlocking the secrets of psychosis. And if we could experimentally produce psychosis, then we might also be able to uh, to learn how to to stop it, to how to neutral uh, to neutralize these kinds of substances and solve the 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 whole uh, problem of of schizophrenia and psychosis, which was the original uh, promise uh, that people saw in LSD in the early days of LSD research.
1: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: Right, so it's incredibly appealing, not necessarily to members of the counterculture at first, and of course the counterculture is still quite nascent uh, in the nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties. But powerful, uh, but 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 unique and uh, intriguing to a, a different group of individuals, some of whom are are quite powerful as far as uh, the government is concerned. So you in your in your introduction, you say that you don't offer a tidy story. In American Trip, which makes a lot of sense to me as a drug historian myself, the phrase I most often employ when discussing any kind of story about drug use and policy is that it's complicated. But you do organize your book around five LSD researchers and seven visions of LSD that, as you write, uh, collectively make up the plurality of psychedelic identity during the mid 20th century. Now, I already knew some of these five people, like Timothy Leary, but others were new to me. So who are the five people that you write about and why did you choose them?
2: Right. So there are five main figures, as you said, and they're kind of overlapping with the different schools, the seven schools of uh, of LSD research that I I look at in the book. And, um, you know, uh, choosing to have these uh, these figures to really uh, have something to... Uh, Identify with or really uh, look closer on and and having some kind of uh, an accept a live example of these kinds of uh, cultural tendencies and trends was something that that helped uh, bring more uh, depth and and just uh, the the possibility of uh, of of uh, just humanization to to the story and each of these of these figures is is quite uh, quite different from, from the rest. So the first one is uh, Max Strinkel, who was a German psychiatrist who emigrated to the US and became the first investigator to work with LSD in the States. And he pushed that idea of uh, LSD as a psychotic mimetic compound, uh, as I mentioned, uh, a compound that induces psychosis. And, and so uh, he had a, a tremendous impact on that whole movement, the experimental psychosis movement. And although this kind and he was also important in his, uh, in being one, among the first that, to write about the importance of extra pharmacological factors in shaping the effects of LSD or of sense setting, though he didn't call it that, and he didn't uh, really take his conclusions to the last point of realizing how he himself was actually shaping the effects of, of LSD as he was conducting his his experiments. And, and that's why he eventually uh, did fall into the trap of of identifying LSD as an essentially psychotomy medic drug without realizing that that it's mm-hmm. it's a broader story than that. Um, but the second researcher I, I look at is uh, Sidney Cohen, who was a psychiatrist at UCLA School of Medicine. And he became intrigued about psychedelics after having an experience with LSD and finding that it actually did not have the kind of effect that he was expecting, which was uh, he, he came into the experience expecting a psychedelic Uh, experience so he was expecting to have this harrowing experience of psychosis but um, it turned out to be something very different and quite beautiful so uh, that made him curious and he started to run studies on LSD uh, trying to find out if it could have a therapeutic effect and this is where my third figure enters which is Betty Eisner who was a psychologist that uh Cohen invited into his team and put in charge of optimizing the set and the setting in his uh, experiments in order to to achieve the the best results and it it was uh, it was really nice also to to write about Eisner because she's not a very well-known figure uh, but she Actually, she's one of the earliest researchers to write about the idea of using um, contextual elements or uh, a sense setting to optimize psychedelic experiences. And in that sense, she's kind of a mother figure to a lot of uh, what later came on in the world of, of uh, psychedelic therapy, and to this day, and she was also uh, an only woman in the world of of, of men, and in, in many of these conferences, uh, you know, you would have these uh, uh, f- thirty uh, males uh, in, in the picture, and 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 Betty Eisner as the only one. So it <laughs> it was. Um, so it was n- nice to uh, kind of uh, r- redeem her story and, and, and show how also uh, the, uh, the very um, uh, significant influence that she also had on this development of the uh, idea of sense setting.
0: Right, replacing that pioneer back into the story. I think that's an incredibly uh, important uh, contribution that this book makes. So, as a woman, I appreciate your story. you're telling the story of Betty Eisner and putting her back into the tale.
2: <laughs> and 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 the, and the interesting thing also in I mean when I'm looking at Cohen and and Eisner and their. Two separate figures, though they're involved in the same kind of research, but they eventually part ways. Uh, and, and this parting of ways is also interesting in a way because Eisner became more and more infused with psychedelics, uh, with spiritual ideas like cosmic consciousness and reincarnations, while Cohen at the same time became increasingly critical of psychedelic research and, and published some of the most influential early papers on the risks of, of psychedelics. So they eventually uh, uh, went uh, separate ways. Um and then I have the, uh, as a fourth figure, uh, I have the figure of, of Timothy Leary, who, who's, of course, uh, much better known than all of my other figures. And uh, he was a Harvard psychology professor that became interested in, in psychedelics and quickly became immersed in the, in this world and became this kind of uh, LSD evangelist that got kicked out of Harvard, had run-ins with the law and uh, eventually became a symbol for the entire psychedelic counterculture and also a scapegoat for not only for the American government, but to this day to uh, psychedelic scientists and his, and, mm-hmm. and that, that often... Uh, uh, you know, blame him for for the entire um uh for for the entire sad tale of what happened to to psychedelic research uh, later on, which is often blamed on on Leary and his very uh, extravagant and and flamboyant uh, uh, character and behavior. Uh, yes. Yeah. And and then the, 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 the fourth uh, the 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 fifth figure the fifth and last one is uh, is Myron Stolarov, who was a very successful electrical engineer uh, with an interest in personal development. And he became interested in LSD in the early 1960s. He founded the International Foundation of Advanced Studies, which worked uh, from Palo Alto uh, that in, in the area that later became known as Silicon Valley. And that whole chapter is called uh, Psychedelics Go to Silicon Valley. And it's mm-hmm. about uh, the use of psychedelics for... Um, for technological innovation. He had a group that was composed mainly of engineers and other technical people. And their most most famous project was one where they gave LSD and mescaline to groups of scientists and engineers and technicians that were stuck solving uh, professional problems and trying to find out if psychedelics could contribute to technological innovation. And it turned out that they could. It, it was only a pilot study, but it led to uh, several, uh, to many breakthroughs for, for these people and to patents and to products. So that's really one experiment that uh, I think would be very interesting to repeat in this newer wave of, of psychedelic renaissance that we're currently going through.
0: Yeah, imagine what uh, imagine what our iPhones could become if uh, <laughs> people at Apple were given more psychedelics exactly. to work through oh, their yeah. work through their professional challenges, right? Um, that's great. So you also then focus on what you call seven visions of LSD and its users. What do you mean by this phrase? And which seven visions did you
2: focus on? Right, so uh, seven visions of LSD and its uses. Uh, uh, that's uh, seven distinct visions that existed in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties uh, in these different uh, r- researcher groups or user groups uh, about what LSD is and and what's the proper way to use it. So you had uh, at the time different groups working with very different assumptions and ideas about what this drug does and reporting and creating very different kinds of sets and settings in terms of uh, what kinds of expectations and intentions they were creating in their in their subjects and what kind of environments they were creating for them what kinds of activities they asked them to take part in so um these seven groups to uh, I describe them as microclimates of, of seven settings. so thinking about uh, the entire American society as the the sense setting for the a grander American trip, and then uh, in 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 the books that go that describe these uh, seven visions of LSD, I go into the these microclimates of of smaller uh, subgroups or, or um, subcultures that were interested in. Um, in creating uh, or achieving uh, specific effects from or from these substances, and the first group is the psychedelic group that I've already mentioned. A second group was the military and the CIA, who were interested in using psychedelics in battle as incapacitating agents, or or for torture, or for special operations like slipping LSD into Castro's teacup because before he's about to give a speech and embarrass himself um so that that's uh, a second line of, of research the third one is the psychotherapeutic ones uh, that we're also uh, that's i guess today the most uh, uh, the, the most well-known and the most prominent in the world of psychedelics he uses psychedelics in in psychotherapy and in psychiatry more generally then you have the fourth school that was about uh, the spiritual use of LSD, the use of LSD to induce mystical experience experiences, and you of course have the very famous Good Friday experiment that Timothy Leary ran in the early nineteen sixties, where he gave psilocybin to a group of uh, a divinity students, um, and who and yeah. with a double blind with a uh, with another group that did not get any of, of the psilocybin and uh, uh, produced for the first time this result that showed uh, quite unequivocally that LSD uh, the psilocybin and psychedelics are are quite able to induce, very powerful um, uh, spiritual experiences, something that was, of course, uh, widely known throughout cultures uh, uh, throughout the years. But, you know, that was the first time that it was uh, shown scientifically and uh, in the new wave of uh, of psychedelic research, that was also one of the first um, results to become to become replicated by the Johns Hopkins team that that ended up doing a 2006 study showing how psychedelics induced mystical experiences and corroborated that, that earlier research. So this question was, more or less decided later in the decade when psychedelics really entered the cultural scene and you had people like the Beatles and and Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd and and psychedelic uh, poster art really coming into into, uh, the cultural scene. And at that point, it was already decided for the culture that psychedelics are this kind of Cultural stimulant that everybody became interested in, and in the by the end of the sixties, you already had like groups uh, like Motown groups, like the Temptations, interested in doing uh, uh, psychedelic music, uh, uh, quote unquote. Um, the the sixth group is the tech innovation group that uh, I I disc- I oh this that I discussed earlier, so I won't get into that. And the seventh and last one is the use of uh, Psychedelics for political reasons. So in the 1950s, that was mostly about the use of psychedelics for peace building, and we have reports about LSD sessions being run in the with in the UN with the UN members and uh, and heads of states and uh, and and ministers. And in the late 1960s, that became more about the radicalizing effects of LSD using LSD to raise political consciousness in the in in the left in revolutionary groups and eventually leading all the way to the more radicalized guerrilla warfare of of groups like the Weather Underground who were deeply involved with with LSD and saw it as kind of a a tool to uh, awaken the, the political uh, consciousness of, of their of their um, of their members.
0: Right, I feel like there's there's a growing understanding uh, in some realms of the role that LSD has played on a governmental level. Uh, for example, I feel like Americans have a growing understanding of the MK Ultra experiments uh, in the 1960s, and uh, I'm thinking too of Stephen Kinzer's new book um, "Poisoner in Chief," which is about Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA's search for mind control. So we're starting to understand a little bit more about the interest the federal government and the military had in this substance, uh, and for for kind of a one might one might say you know somewhat suggestive uses, uh, but your book I feel like does a, a really nice job of expanding our understanding of how these visions of LSD, what it could do, what it could achieve, was used for both nefarious and, and very powerful and oftentimes very positive uh, outcomes as well. Um, But your book as a whole is 10 chapters long, and as you're kind of going through those seven visions, uh, they line up um, in some ways with with the first seven chapters, which sort of provide a historical overview, moving through LSD research in the 50s and 60s and exploring the role that set and setting played in each of these instances. But in your last three chapters, you also analyze the ways in which LSD interacts with American society. Uh, You say that there is a deep sense of cultural embeddedness of psychedelics. I really, I really like that phrase and that these drugs have a culturally dependent nature. So what do you mean by the cultural embeddedness of psychedelics? Uh, how have psychedelics like LSD interacted with American society and how does American society interact or has it interacted with with psychedelics?
2: right so when you look at the story of of psychedelics in the in the 1960s you can see that a lot of the, um, of the things that LSD and psychedelics were assumed to do. And a lot of the qualities that were ascribed to them were actually, in a sense, uh, a reflection of the preoccupations of American society at the time and of different cultural trends that just became kind of attached to the story of psychedelics. So, for example... um, in the 1960s, the psychedelic experience was highly sexualized. And you had people like Timothy Leary telling readers of Playboy that a woman on LSD will have hundreds of orgasms in, in one session. And and you had uh, these books like The Sexual Paradise of LSD. And you had this general idea that LSD opens the gate to a new world of, of liberated polymorphous sexuality of the kind that writers like uh, Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse, were talking about, a multidimensional sexuality, uh, a kind of utopian eroticism. Um, So uh, when you look at it from a cross-cultural perspective, you find that really um, it does, this kind of... um, of assumption about psychedelics being sexual enhancers is quite foreign to to a lot of the uh, the traditional uses of psychedelics in in shamanic uh, uses uh, sex is a big no no And um, actually, you're supposed to be sexually abstinent for a very long time to to get anywhere with your initiation with with psychedelics. And you can see that actually uh, the whole uh, sexual uh, connection was really related to uh, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and to the fact that uh, psychedelics were mostly used by these very young people that were into free love. and. and Though that became later assumed to be, uh, or at the time it was assumed uh, to be uh, quite a central aspect of the of the effect of these drugs, and 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 um. And you you can see that in in other instances, uh, for example, uh, psychedelics were thought to be something that uh, makes you question authority, that makes you think for yourself, um, and uh, that that are uh, that make people uh, instinctively rebellious and anti-war, anti-money, uh, anti. Um, anti-psychiatry, anti-whatever. And and this is one of the of, uh, the oft-repeated uh, maxims of psychedelic culture. And Terence McKenna, who was uh, one of the uh, leading uh, psychedelic thinkers of, of the 80s and 90s, he, he said it best when he said, you know, if uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Hasidic rabbi or a Marxist-Leninist or a rationalist scientist, psychedelics will make you in your worldview, and and then <laughs> and then you look at, at these other societies uh, where psychedelics are used traditionally, and and you find that actually their psychedelics are not used to. Uh, question or destabilize social norms. But on the contrary, they're they're used to instill the values of of the society and to enhance the social cohesion. So they don't enhance the generation gap. They are seen as a generational bridge. And uh, they're not a countercultural technology. They're a pro-cultural technology. And the reason that they became so associated with this rebelliousness, individualism in the in American society of the mid-20th century was really, again, uh, because of this whole phenomena of the counterculture that became associated with psychedelics and that was uh, so much about this non-conformism. So those are just uh, two examples of ways in which uh, these broader cultural trends uh, intervened to kind of shape how people approached and thought about these these substances in ways that later also changed the, the experience of, the experiences of people change the expectations, the intentions and, and the kind of uh, the whole scene and, uh, and discourse around these agents.
0: Right. It's, it's like a, it's the, the question of the chicken and the egg in the 1960s. What came first, LSD or anti-authoritarian attitudes? Absolutely. And you know, both were sort of feeding off of each other and, and, and um, emboldening each other. That's fascinating. Uh, one of the other arguments that you make is that the role of set and setting should be considered when making drug policy. And I think this is a really, really intriguing idea, how could America craft better drug laws with these concepts in mind?
2: Right. So one of the of the stories that I I, uh, that I talk about in the book is uh, uh, it's based on a paper by this uh, sociologist Richard Boone's uh, published in the nineteen seventies, where where Boone's uh, looked at the at the s- the growing rate of of bad trips in the late 1960s, and he argued that that had to do with this environment of paranoia and a deep suspicion of of, psychedel- of psychedelics that the American government was uh, was uh, advocating or, or supporting at the time, and so we can see that uh, these kinds of uh, anti-drug campaigns or um, the kinds of Attitudes that governments and society at large uh, creates around mind-altering experiences can really have a deep influence about how people approach these these substances. And again, it's very it's very different if you approach them from uh, from a Western perspective of I don't know getting hammered or just. Uh, trying to w- w- wipe out your brain. I'm I'm giving these very uh, extreme examples, but of course, uh, Western society has had a very troubled relationship with with mind-altering experiences, and it, it and achieves very different kinds of results than, say, mm. the kinds of experiences that people have often in in. Traditional societies where they're used as part of a, in a ritualistic setting as something that's that's meaningful. So when our society, when our uh, when the state or when our government um, tells us that these substances are wrong, that the, uh, the people using them. Are uh, are bad people uh, that they're when they're really distorting information about them to to make them seem more scary or dangerous and uh, you know people talk about fake news today but uh, but in the 1960s American government was spreading loads of fake news about <laughs> psychedelics you know that they're causing chromosome damage people were worried at the time that they would have mutant kids because the government was telling them that and and that it fries their brain and and all sorts of stuff. So when you have all of these things and, and they're actually causing real harm. So I would argue that um, rather than going on these uh, anti-drug uh, crusades that actually end up creating these... Uh, fear-based environments where people uh, are much likelier to experience uh, anxiety and experience um, just distress, Uh, we we do better uh, if we want to minimize harms and maybe even maximize benefits. If we think about the kinds of Tools that we give to people in our society, and think about drug education, uh, real drug education, in the sense of teaching people about the effects, the the dangers, and the potential benefits, or or, or just you know that also the 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 real uh, the. The positive sides, because uh, there are some positive uh, effects that the drugs have, otherwise people won't, won't, wouldn't use them. So mm-hmm. so if, if, if people got an honest kind of, of education that really allowed them to approach uh, psychoactive substances in a way that's, uh, that's more fruitful and not based on just on kind of um, state reduced uh, uh, fear and and ignorance.
0: <laughs> well, I wish I had confidence to to say that the American government would not produce uh, anti drug propaganda, but um, I don't I don't know if I don't know if that'll ever be the case. But there are certain areas in the US that do seem to be, um, uh, listening to your argument. Uh, Denver, Colorado had decriminalized the possession of, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, um, a year or two ago. Uh, listeners can, can give me the exact date, uh, later in their comments, but where I live in Washington, DC, um, we're actually letting residents vote on decriminalizing the possession of, um, what are referred to as psychedelic plant medicines next week uh, during the presidential election on November 3rd. Up the street in Baltimore uh, at Johns Hopkins University, researchers are studying the very positive and beneficial effects of psychedelics on treating things like PTSD and depression. So what are your thoughts on this renewed interest in the medical benefits of psychedelia and what can the history of the 1960s tell us about our current moment? Can it, can it warn us away from anything and can it direct us in the right direction?
2: Right. So um, first of all, it, it's, it's an incredible uh, moment to be alive these days as, as, as somebody interested in, in psychedelics or as a psychedelic researcher, because really uh, everything that's happening today is kind of science fiction to anyone that was interested in these uh, in these agents uh, 15 or 20 years ago uh, there was just nowhere on the horizon that uh, these things would come back from being a uh, complete taboo uh, 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 blamed for all the evils of the world, into becoming something that the FDA designates as breakthrough treatment, and that receives um, investor interest, and that's being publicized very positively across the the press and um, and really the the medicalized. Um, uh, the medicalization of, of psychedelics definitely uh, helped a great deal, uh, and in in achieving that uh, new status and uh, psychedelic research in that sense followed maybe uh, on the footsteps of the medicalization of, of uh, cannabis and how that also changed um, the public approach to uh, to marijuana. Um,
0: yes, and- the history does seem. I, I noticed that when I was reading your book, I thought the history of <laughs> medical marijuana in the 1990s uh, seems very, um, parallel to the medicalization of psychedelics today and how that it has um, right. increased the social embrace of these drugs now that they are no longer considered anathema, but, but potential panaceas for uh, problems and diseases and illnesses and traumas that otherwise don't have uh, really effective medications. We're going back right. to essentially these plant medicines that, right. that had been, as you said, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, were considered the boogeymen of American culture, that they were, they were responsible for everything wrong that had gone on and now we're looking at these substances as potential uh, benefits and, and healers for problems that we we don't otherwise know how to address. It is a fascinating transformation that is led uh, by recognition of the the medical benefits that had been so long denied
2: <laughs> for decades. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you know if if we look at uh, the story of the of the 1960s, uh, we can see that so many of these uh, seven uh, visions that I describing the book are, are, are back now. And, you know, it started with the medicalized, but we also have more and more interest in the the creative side. Also the, the, Technical side, the psychometric research is, is still active, and we have uh, these days uh, research going on here in Israel, for example, of uh, bringing together Israelis and Palestinians to drink ayahuasca. So we also have uh, the, the wow. political aspect. Yeah. So. Uh, except- oh wow except for the CIA. I think everybody are back on board. And uh, <laughs> I don't know about the CIA. Maybe there are too, but they're not letting anyone know. Um, <laughs> There'll be a book about it in uh, 50 years. Very possible. But I think that... Um, at the same time, we're also seeing new strains of of discussions and and roles uh, that uh, that are appearing, and uh, you know and ways in which psychedelics also reflect the current set and setting. So. Uh, There's a lot more talk of using psychedelics to increase everyday functioning and productivity, such as in the discourse about microdosing in the office by uh, people in creative uh, industry and so on and so forth. Um, There's uh, a lot more discussions around the subject of of identity, which is quite... um, Of course, uh, in in tune with with the times and with the concerns and and discourse of of our time, and there's also a lot of concern about the commercialization of of this culture and the co-optation of psychedelia by corporations. uh, That's quite uh, also uh, that's arriving together with concerns about medicalization and the um, and the. The concern that uh, the medical uh, vision wants to kind of overrun the the other ones, or or uh, or that we that there's there's a risk that it might overrun the other potentialities, and that's really for me this this book is in a sense a love song to LSD and its plurality of possibilities and and its multiplicity, and in that sense. I would like as uh, as somebody who's interested in, in these substances to see to not see any one school, uh, not the spiritual, not the medical, not the creative rich kind of hegemony. And 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 the story of, of the 60s uh, teaches us really that uh, psychedelics have the ability to really kind of transform and take on whatever it is that we're throwing at them so we need to be aware of the kinds of ideas and notions that we're letting uh, that we're using as as we're letting these agents back into society and be aware that the kind of cultural set- setting that that we have around us that we're creating has really has the potential of shaping how the effects of these drugs are later manifested in the society. So it's a call, basically, for self-reflection, also on a, a social and cultural level, uh, about not just uh, uh, taking these uh, these uh, agents as um, you know as uh, um, already. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, uh, oh, right. It's, it's like yeah. the
0: you know because as you said. You know, the, the definition of psychedelic is mind manifestation, right? If we if psychedelics reveal what is already inside of us, uh, we have to be somewhat careful if we're going to open this Pandora's box because we have to be aware of we, we should probably know before going into it too deep what, what it is that we're going to find. I do deeply hope that they would be responsible for world peace <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to World War Three. But I think you're right. What you what your research has shown and what your your emphasis on and setting points out is how uh, distinctly important it is that we understand that psychedelics don't bring something new to the table. They reveal what's already what's already inside of us for, for good or for ill. And I think that's a really critical uh, component when discussing the future uh, legal, uh, spiritual, artistic and medical understandings of how we use these drugs.
2: Right, and and, and they can open also so many new possibilities and they can uh, lead the way to so many uh, paths of of development, but... All of this is always dependent on, on the kinds of environments that we create for, uh, for really this experimentation. And as you said, it, it can lead in, in many directions and uh, as, as very uh, valuable tools, we need to be aware that we're able to use or misuse them. And it matters how we approach them, not only as individuals, but also as societies and cultures.
0: Right. So it's up to us. It's a lot of responsibility. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time on this absolutely fascinating conversation. But before we let you go, I'd love to know what you're working on now. What
2: is your next project? Right. Uh, So, you know, there's... uh, um, there's so many books that I I want to write, and I have a list of, of several dozens that, that I'm hoping to write someday. Several um, wow. dozens? Yeah, oh gosh. <laughs> I, I don't know if they're all that great, but at least the, the idea is there. And um, but if you you've got to choose, uh, you've got to mm. choose one. You can't write them all. And and there's this one book that I really want to to get to writing, which is kind of a continuation and a remake of my first book, Techno Mystica. Uh, And that's because uh, my first published book, which was published in Hebrew in 2009, uh, which was about media ecology, about how different media environments shape consciousness shape our experience in the world um, and uh, and there uh, i talk not only about digital media and you know how things like a smartphone or uh, or a computer shape your experience uh, or shape consciousness but also drugs and nutrition and uh, urban landscapes and and garments and and as i was approaching the end of american trip I, I realized that I was actually writing my first book all over again, only with a different emphasis. Because set and setting is all about how these environments shape uh, our awareness and consciousness. Only only with set and setting, the focus is on psychedelics and how that happens uh, within a psychedelic experience uh, so in a sense i'd like to go back and revisit that original hunch that i had in techno and and try to produce a more informed mature version this time in english and that's informed <laughs> by by both by the this whole uh, excursion into the idea of sense setting and the theory of sense setting and also made the idea of the uh, ideas of media ecology uh, uh, that's a theoretical school and create a kind of guide to media environments and how they shape our minds, which is a very grand project, but I, I like grand, grand projects.
0: <laughs> well, when it's released, I look forward to talking about it with you here on the New Books Network. Uh, So thank you so much. I really want to thank you for being on this show today. I've absolutely enjoyed our conversation. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of American Trip, especially if you live in areas where psychedelics might be legalized or decriminalized soon, bone up on the history of this. And thank you so much, Ido. Uh, Really an enjoyable conversation and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me.